Before we get into this week's episode, I need to make a correction about last week's story. Jill Holzbach was murdered in Jackson Township, Ohio, near Akron, not Jackson, Ohio, near Chillicothe. Big thank you to Annie, who pointed out my error in the nicest way possible. Thank you, Annie. Listeners, I know there is a big segment of the true crime fandom that is really into serial killers. Sorry, friends, but I'm not one of them. When it comes to true crime, my interest lies in the mystery inside of the story, in the cold cases that wait for someone to pay them some attention for someone to finally speak up. I enjoy exploring the realm of what really happened here, which, when a serial killer is identified, arrested, and brought to trial, that mystery is lost. Serial killers tend to be men, most often white men. I believe that only about 20% of the known serial killers are black males, like the perpetrator we're discussing today. I haven't covered many serial killers. John Norman Collins, who allegedly murdered several women in Michigan and in California in the late 60s, he's one of them. His case was well known to me because my mother had a bit of a preoccupation with him, as she was college age at the time he was thought to be murdering women near the campus of Eastern Michigan University. Then there is Donald Miller, who killed several women including his former fiancée in the East Lansing area, before being apprehended. Miller is up for parole in the fall of 2021, and we're going to keep an eye on that because Donald Miller is one son of a bitch who should never, ever see daylight. We also did an episode about David Goodrow from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. He murdered two women and was caught as he attacked a third woman but she was able to summon police who apprehended him near the scene. Then there are the killers I haven't covered yet. Benjamin Atkins, who stalked sex workers along the Woodward Corridor in the early 90s. He died in prison in 1997. Leslie Allen Williams, who murdered four teenage girls in West Oakland County and sexually assaulted an unknown number of other victims. We do touch briefly on Williams in the mini-season of Don't Talk to Strangers, which will be out later this month. But he's not our focus. And when it comes to Michigan serial killers, I can't leave out Elias Abulazam, the six-foot-five Israeli who terrorized Flint in 2009 and 2010. He is thought to have killed five men, attacked another five men, and was sent to prison for murder in 2010. He was apprehended down here in Georgia as he was about to board a plane to Tel Aviv, but he was brought back to Michigan to face charges. And of course, there's also the as-yet-unidentified Oakland County child killer, but as you know, that's a story for another podcast. So why choose to talk about Carl Eugene Watts? It's not the nickname although the Sunday morning slasher sounds amazing and terrifying all at once. It's not that he's the only known serial killer to be granted parole. Yes, you heard that right. He was paroled in Texas of all places. But we'll get to that later in the story. And it's not the machine-like precision with which he worked. Although honestly, 
Watts is one of the most terrifying killers I've ever read about. This episode was suggested to me by someone living in Ann Arbor at the time of the killings, and he and his friends remember this time quite clearly. I've talked to a couple of people about Watts, about how utterly terrifying he was, and we'll get into his crimes, but, you know, I've heard stories of him stalking women in Ann Arbor barely a decade after John Norman Collins committed his horrific crimes in neighboring Ypsilanti. I've heard how Watts tried, quite literally, to catch them out. But one of the women, his intended victim, she made it to the door of her home, fumbling with her key and slipping inside, bolting the door behind her as Watts arrived on her porch. Then there are the cases that remain unsolved, cases of missing women who could possibly be victims of Watts, like 16-year-old Nadine O'Dell, who disappeared from Watts' hometown of Inkster on an overcast morning in August of 1974, or the disappearance of blonde, beautiful 29-year-old Lily Marlene Dunn from Southgate. She'd been out with friends and arrived home around 2.30 in the morning. A neighbor heard her struggling with someone, but they thought it was just a quarrel and didn't intervene. Lily left behind a husband and young daughter, and she was never seen or heard from again. Were these cases the work of Carl Eugene Watts? There is only one way to find out. Come with me to Colleen, Texas. It's November 1953, and a young couple is celebrating the birth of their child, a son, Carl Eugene Watts. Richard Watts was an Army Private First Class, and he was stationed at Fort Hood Military Base that year. In the weeks after Carl's birth, the young family moved from Texas to West Virginia. Carl was the first of his parents' two children. Richard Eugene Watts and his wife, Dorothy May, they would have a daughter named Sharon barely a year after Carl arrived. The Watts did not have a happy marriage. His parents split up just a few months after Sharon was born. Between the moves, the arrival of another baby, and his parents' divorce, Carl's early years could be viewed as turbulent. After the split, in 1955, Dorothy moved with her two small children, settling in the Detroit area. They found a home in the Detroit suburb of Inkster. If you aren't familiar with Inkster, It's located between what is now Westland and the city of Dearborn. Many African-American families settled in Inkster because they were not allowed to reside in Dearborn. Even though many of them worked in the city, landing jobs at Ford Motor Company. Inkster is where Carl grew up, not far from the loving and watchful eye of his grandmother, Lula May. The little boy was close to his grandmother and it was while living in Inkster that he started going by Coral, rather than his given name of Carl. He liked the way people said his name in the South. Coral. And that's what he wanted to be called. In 1962, his mother, Dorothy, married a mechanic named Norman Caesar. The couple would go on to have two more children. The marriage caused young Coral a lot of anxiety. He was afraid that his mother would no longer have time for him. Those who knew Coral when he was young described him as shy, quiet, and introverted. When he was a child, and reports vary on this, he could have been as young as eight, 
or as old as 13, but he was diagnosed with meningitis. Coral was gravely ill. His temperature spiked, and doctors feared that even if he survived the illness, he would have brain damage. The meningitis was so serious that he missed several months of school and had to repeat the grade when he was well enough to return. Let's pause here for a moment and talk about brain injury in adults who commit violence. We have come across several killers who are discovered to have a brain injury. I immediately thought of James Lawsing. We discussed Lawsing in the June 12, 2019 episode of Don't Talk to Strangers, the long-form series I did on the Oakland County child murders. After his death, it was discovered that Lawsing had a lesion on his brain, most likely caused when he was hit by a car as a teenager. Then there is Marvin Gabrion, the only man that Michigan has on death row. He was known to have had several motorcycle accidents with head injuries and several car accidents going through the windshield of a car more than once. Gabrion is responsible for several murders and disappearances. And I'm not saying that Coral had a brain injury. I'm not saying that meningitis is the reason he became a notorious and terrifying serial killer. What I am saying is that this is a factor to keep in mind when we look at his life and the choices he made as he grew to adulthood. If you want to read a bit more on this idea that brain injury could be linked to violence, there is a January 30th, 2018 story in Scientific American titled, How Responsible Are Killers with Brain Damage? Just something for you to think about. In 1969, when Watts was 15 years old, he offered a terrifying preview of the man he would become. Watts had a paper route, and while working this route, he came in contact with a 26-year-old woman named Joan Gave. When Joan opened the door in response to Coral's knock, he attacked her, lunging into her home and beating her. She survived the attack, and Coral was taken into custody. He was sent to the Lafayette Clinic in Detroit for treatment. While at the clinic, he was given an assessment. During the assessment, he told the psychiatrist, a Dr. Gary Ainsworth, that he frequently dreamt of women, that he, quote, tried to fight off the evil spirits of women. Basically, in his dreams, he tried to kill women. He told the doctor that the dreams were not upsetting. They made him feel better. Watts revealed to the doctor that his thoughts of hurting women started when he was about 12 years old. After his final meeting with Watts, Dr. Ainsworth wrote, quote, This patient is a paranoid young man who is struggling for control of strong, homicidal impulses. His behavior controls are faulty, and there is a high potential for violent acting out. This individual is considered dangerous. The doctor also noted that Watts had an IQ of about 68. For reference, the average IQ is between 90 and 110. A score of 68 sets Watts far below normal. On November 9th, 1969, Watts is released from the Lafayette Clinic. He went back for treatment only nine times, and then any mental health intervention he may have received stopped completely. We've touched on Coral's emotional health, but let's return to his physical health. After he recovered from his life-threatening battle with meningitis, he had a hard time keeping up with school. 
At the age of 16, he was reading at a third grade level. And while academics were a struggle, he excelled in sports. He played both football and baseball. He was a Golden Gloves boxer and he ran track. And while his grades weren't particularly good, he finished high school in 1973 at age 19 and received a scholarship to play football at Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee. If, like me, you aren't familiar with Lane, It's a historically black college associated with the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church. But his time at Lane was limited. He would be back home in Michigan before Christmas. The reasons for leaving Lane are varied and cannot be confirmed. Some believe he was asked to leave after stalking and threatening female students. Others claim he decided to leave after a knee injury derailed his college football career. There is rumor that he committed his first murder while in Tennessee, but I can't find anything to substantiate that. By 1974, Watts is back home with his mom, stepdad, and younger half-siblings. He found work as a mechanic. With his mother's encouragement, he gave college another try, this time enrolling at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, where he studied engineering. 1974 is also when Watts began his work as a serial killer. Before we delve into this grim work, you should know that Watts is thought to have murdered up to 100 women. Like John Norman Collins just five years earlier, Watts started killing on a college campus where he blended in as a student. His first attack was on a woman who lived in an apartment just off the Western Michigan University campus. On October 25, 1974, 20-year-old Lenore Kiznacki opened her apartment door to a knock. Lenore was smart and cautious, so she left the chain engaged when she opened the door. There was an African-American man looking for Charles. She told him he had the wrong apartment, and he left. Watts then knocked on the doors of other units asking for Charles, eventually making his way back to Lenore's place. She offered him a pencil and paper to leave a note for Charles, and when she turned her back, He forced the door open, knocked her to the ground, and began choking her. She lost consciousness, and when she started to come around, she saw Watts exit the door of her apartment, leaving her bruised and frightened but alive. The next woman who encountered Coral Watts would not be so fortunate. It's October 30th, 1974. At 1.40 p.m., detectives from Western Michigan University Police respond to an apartment on the third floor of the Stadium Drive Apartments. The complex, which today offers a variety of housing options for students, is located on the southeast side of the college campus. Police, students, and onlookers are crowding the apartment of 19-year-old Gloria Steele. Steele, the mother of a one-year-old girl and a student at Western Michigan University, died from multiple stab wounds to the chest. Police initially looked at her boyfriend, There were reports of drug paraphernalia in the apartment as well. Could her murder be related to drugs? The violence of the killing, but lack of sexual assault, well, it's puzzling. Steele was stabbed more than 30 times. The murder weapon, which had broken off inside of her, was a woodworking tool. The apartment wasn't ransacked, and nothing other than Steele's purse was missing. The boyfriend, Sam Waller, was a good suspect as far as law enforcement was concerned. 
When police spoke with Gloria's neighbors, asking if they'd noticed anything suspicious, they learned that an African-American male had knocked on their apartment door earlier in the day, looking for Charles. And if that sounds familiar, it's the same tactic he employed when he assaulted Lenore Kiznacki. One of Gloria's neighbors would pick Watts out of a photo lineup. Steele's boyfriend, Sam Waller, he confessed to police that he did have drug items in the apartment, and that while he was involved in the drug trade, it had nothing to do with Gloria. He told police that on the morning of October 30th, Gloria got up early, she had a class, and then she had a job interview. Police learned that she made it to class and to the interview, leaving the interview, which was a successful interview, by the way, around 11 or 11.15 in the morning. And it's likely that she was attacked shortly after she returned home. When Waller found her body, he notified authorities. In addition to being the first confirmed victim of Coral Watts, Gloria Steele is one of the few African-American victims. The majority of the women that he killed or is thought to have killed are white. Watts struck again less than two weeks later, November 12, 1974. He's using the same routine to find victims, knocking on doors and asking for Charles. This time, he found 23-year-old Diane Williams. When she answered the door and told him she didn't know a Charles, he asked her for a pencil and paper so he could write a note. Diane gave him the items he requested, and Watts wrote a note and stuck it near the mailboxes. As he approached her to return the pencil, he attacked her, choking her with both hands and knocking her to the ground. She soon lost consciousness, and when she awoke, she was alive and alone. There was no sign of her attacker. Grateful that she wasn't dead or the victim of sexual assault, she called the police and filed a report. Diane Williams would also pick Watts out of a photo array within days of the attack. On November 16th, Watts is taken into custody. He admits to police that he was at the Stadium Drive apartments, but not on the day of Steele's murder. And he tells police that, yes, he met a guy named Charles at a party, and, yep, he'd been looking for him. To the shock of detectives doing the interview, Watts confesses to not one, but 15 assaults of women. He won't talk about Gloria Steele, the brutally murdered African-American woman killed in her apartment, but he has a lot to say about the other attacks. Police search Watts' car and his home. In this case, his home is the residence he shares with his mother and stepfather. They find a set of woodworking tools that appear similar to the item used to murder Gloria Steele, but they do not have enough evidence to get him for the murder. Watts is given a court-ordered psychiatric evaluation. The doctor tells the court that Watts is competent to stand trial, but the court should know Watts is a dangerous man, a man with a high likelihood of reoffending. Before he can be tried for the attacks on Kisnacki and Williams, the cases with the strongest evidence, Watts decides to plead guilty to charges. Despite recommendations from the doctor who evaluated Watts, the judge sentences him to a year in a psychiatric hospital. Watts is transferred and admitted to the Kalamazoo State Hospital. While in hospital, the doctor assigned to manage his care, a Dr. Moore, reviews Watts' file from the Lafayette Clinic. As he pours over the records pertaining to the assault case when Watts was a teenager, 
he concludes that Watts is likely responsible for the deaths of two women at Lafayette Clinic while he was there for treatment in 1969. Listeners, I checked news archives to see if there is any record of the deaths at Lafayette Clinic, but there was not. I thought about requesting something from Detroit police, but without a name or a date, I'm not sure I'd get very far. Watts would spend a year at the Kalamazoo State Hospital receiving treatment. While incarcerated, Watts attempted to end his own life. He managed to hang himself with a cord, but he was found in time and resuscitated. When Watts was released to his parents after treatment, and this was in late 1975 or early 1976, he had a new diagnosis, antisocial personality disorder. Dr. Moore posited that Watts' mother, Dorothy Caesar, was likely the only person who understood him. Out of the hospital after a year of treatment, Watts embarked on a somewhat normal life. He had girlfriends, including a lady named Dolores Howard. During their courtship, Howard became pregnant and gave birth to a daughter, Watts' only known child. The relationship with Howard did not last, and not much is known about his relationship, if any, with his child. Watts then became involved with another woman, Valeria Goodwill, and the pair eventually married, but the marriage didn't last. Later, Goodwill discussed their relationship and his behavior during the marriage. She reported that Watts acted strangely. Some of the behavior she described included how he would cut up their houseplants and melt candles onto tables. He was also known to leave the house immediately after the two engaged in sex. He had loud and violent nightmares. Goodwill decided she wouldn't stick around and left him after a few months filing for divorce. Then we arrive in 1979, the city of Ferndale. We're in Oakland County, and for those not familiar with the area, the southern border of the city of Ferndale is Eight Mile Road. Just south of Eight Mile Road is Detroit, and Ferndale has Woodward Avenue running directly through it. It's Saturday, December 9th, 1979. 36-year-old Helen Dutcher is stabbed to death in an alley behind the Ferndale dry cleaners. Her murder is witnessed by a local man, Joseph Foy. Foy saw a man struggling with Dutcher and then dragging her behind a dumpster. Foy called police to report what he saw, and that's when her body was found. Dutcher did not survive the attack. She'd been stabbed ten times. She was not sexually assaulted. Foy worked with police to create a sketch of the killer, but no one recognized the sketch. Helen Dutcher's case ends up in the cold file. In the spring of 1980, on Saturday, September 19th, 17-year-old Shirley Small heads to Farmington Hills for an outing with friends at Bonaventure Skating Rink. After skating, the group heads to the Big Boy restaurant in Ypsilanti for a late-night meal. Shirley is not keen on staying for dinner. The night of fun with friends was a bust. While they were skating, her boyfriend broke off their relationship, and she wasn't in the mood for small talk or food. When the group arrived at Big Boy, Shirley departed on foot, headed for Ann Arbor. She was going home. Her now former boyfriend got in his car and found her walking along Packard Road around 3.45 a.m., He tried to get her into the car for a ride home, and Shirley refused. When he persisted, she told him no again and continued walking, 
So he gave up and headed back to Big Boy. At 4.45 a.m. on Sunday, April 20th, 1980, the remains of Shirley Small are found not far from her residence. Her body is on the lawn of a house at 2820 Page Street. Small was stabbed to death. And what we're seeing here is the early work of serial killer Coral Eugene Watts. He will soon be dubbed the Sunday morning slasher. While Ann Arbor police worked the case, they found no motive for Small's murder and very little evidence at the scene. This type of assault, a sudden blitz attack, often from behind, delivering multiple wounds in a short period of time, and then dropping the victim's body to the ground and walking away from the scene, this is a hallmark of Watts' crimes. In the summer of 1980, 25-year-old Glenda Richman is working at the Brown Jug restaurant. The Brown Jug is an institution in Ann Arbor and takes its name from the Michigan-Minnesota football rivalry. The team that wins the game gets the Brown Jug trophy. Located on University in downtown Ann Arbor, the restaurant is a staple of student life. When her shift ended at the Brown Jug, Glenda headed out. She may have been distracted or tired as she left. She was engaged to be married, and maybe her head was filled with thoughts of a future that she would not live to see. Before she could enter the relative safety of her home, she was grabbed and overpowered. Glenda was stabbed 28 times with a, quote, blunt-type puncture instrument, possibly a screwdriver. Her body was in the grass, less than four steps from the door of her home. There was no sign of sexual assault, and like with the murder of Shirley Small, they have no motive and little in the way of evidence. Like previous victims, Glenda was killed in the small hours of Sunday morning, July 13, 1980. September 14, 1980, 30-year-old flight attendant Rebecca Huff is found stabbed in the entrance to her apartment. She has suffered more than 50 wounds and her injuries are fatal. A neighbor heard her screams and will tell police that they caught a glimpse of a man running away. These aren't his only victims. Going back to 1979, we have the October 8th murder of 22-year-old Peggy Pakmara in Detroit. She was strangled. October 31st, 1979, 44-year-old Jeannie Klein of Gross Point is dropped off on Kerchival for a doctor's appointment. As she left the appointment around 6 p.m., she is attacked and stabbed 11 times. Her body is found on the sidewalk on Kerchival between Lothrop and Merriweather. This is a residential area, and she literally bled to death within a few yards of several homes. Klein once worked as a food writer for the Detroit newspapers, so her case received a fair amount of attention in print at the time. There were other attacks, not all of them fatal, both in Detroit and across the river in Ontario, Canada. March 11, 1980, 23-year-old Hazel Connor of Detroit strangled. May 31, 1980, 27-year-old Linda Montiero, also strangled. In Windsor, there was the July 1980 attack on 22-year-old Irene Kondratowicz. Her throat was slashed, but she survived. Other survivors include Sandra Delpy and Mary Angus. A pattern is emerging in the greater Detroit area. Someone is attacking women, either strangling or stabbing them. The lack of sexual assault and robbery is puzzling. The Ann Arbor police work hard on the three cases in their jurisdiction. 
Ann Arbor is home to tens of thousands of female college students. The memory of John Norman Collins and his crimes a decade earlier is still fresh in people's minds. Ann Arbor Police Chief William J. Corbett is a seasoned peace officer who took the helm of the Ann Arbor Department after starting his law enforcement career as a Detroit cop back in 1954. Corbett and his team had three dead women and very few leads. They believed that the murders of Shirley, Glenda, and Rebecca were connected. Despite a big age difference and lifestyle differences, 17-year-old Shirley, 25-year-old Glenda, and 30-year-old Rebecca, they feel it is one offender responsible for all three cases. And Corbett made sure that every detective in the Ann Arbor department was working the murders. During a press conference, he said that the similarities between the cases did not mean that there was a, quote, psychotic killer out there murdering women. Oh, Chief, I think you said that just to make the community feel better. But if they knew then what we would learn later? Hmm. Corbett implored the public to step forward with tips or information. And his comments were supported by Ann Arbor's mayor, Louis Belcher. Belcher said, quote, I want to assure all citizens that we will use our full, unlimited resources in tracking down the killer or killers of the three young women who were murdered so ruthlessly and in cold blood. Belcher then chastised the people of Ann Arbor, reminding them that in two of the three cases, people heard the attacks but didn't call police. They just went back to bed despite hearing their neighbor's distress. And while officials are speaking publicly, the community has their own thoughts, and many of them believe that the boyfriend of Shirley Small was responsible for her death. Adding to the overall feeling of unease, after the press conference, someone entered the University of Michigan Student Union and scrawled, Another woman will die tonight, across the mirrors in a public restroom. Chief Corbett was furious. He told the press the message was either written by the killer or by pranksters, and if it was left by pranksters, they were responsible for diverting resources from the investigation and putting lives at risk. And if it was the killer who left the message, then students need to come forward if they saw anything. So, remember how I mentioned that Chief Corbett had a long career in law enforcement, working with Detroit police prior to leading the department in Ann Arbor? Well, this connection is about to pay off in a big way, resulting in their first break in the case. A Detroit officer by the name of James Arthurs, he tipped off Chief Corbett about a warrant Detroit police helped Kalamazoo police execute on a Detroit man named Coral Eugene Watts. While Kalamazoo sent Watts away for two cases of assault, they still had an unsolved murder, the death of 19-year-old Gloria Steele. Western Michigan University Police and the county prosecutor were not giving up, and they still liked Watts for Steele's death. When Corbett learns of Watts as a potential suspect, he got a photo of Watts, and he distributed the picture of Watts to every Ann Arbor patrol officer and said, look out for this guy. And listeners, this strategy, it paid off. On November 15th, 1980, Ann Arbor officers Al Dodes and Don Terry are investigating theft from downtown parking meters. So they're working the overnight shift and they're sitting in an unmarked car 
when they spot a woman walking by herself in the early morning hours. They know this is prime time for the Sunday morning slasher, so they decide they're going to keep an eye on her to make sure she gets home safely. As they're watching her, the woman keeps looking behind her. She's obviously nervous. So the patrolmen start following in their vehicle. When they stop their car at the intersection of Liberty and 4th Avenue, they watch as a car drives up next to the officers, and one of the officers turns to look at the driver, and the man behind the wheel is the same man they'd seen a photo of. This is the guy the chief told them to look for. So they run the car's plates and confirm that the owner of the vehicle is Coral Watts. They have Coral Watts in the small hours of Sunday morning, cruising silently through the city behind a woman walking alone. So they initiate a traffic stop and Watts is taken into custody without incident. And that unnamed woman, she made it home safely that night. It is very likely that the officer saved her life by recognizing Watts and pulling him over. Back at the station, they search Watts' vehicle, finding a disturbing assortment of items, including a book with Rebecca Huff's name inside of it, as well as a couple of screwdrivers and wood filing tools. Remember, Rebecca Huff, she was the 30-year-old flight attendant murdered in September of 1980. When they get to the station, Watts immediately asks for an attorney, and when the attorney arrives, Watts is released for lack of evidence. While they have their suspicions, they don't have much in the way of evidence, certainly not enough to hold them. After Watts walked out the front door of the Ann Arbor Police Department, they kept eyes on him around the clock. They felt he was responsible for three exceptionally violent murders in their community, but they couldn't prove it. As we talked about earlier in the episode, Watts was tested to have a below-average IQ, but there was nothing wrong with his memory or his powers of observation, and he soon realizes that he's being monitored. Rather than run the risk of capture and a return to the psychiatric hospital or to prison, Watts made a bold move. He packed his belongings into his car and headed to Texas, settling in a suburb of Houston, where he soon found work at an oil company. Police in Michigan are frustrated. They feel that a serial killer has slipped from their grasp. They made calls to agencies in Texas advising them of the type of person they thought Watts to be. Agencies in Texas look long and hard at Watts. They even followed him when they could. But he didn't step out of line and they had actual criminals to track, so Watts slipped from their radar. I can't find any attacks by Watts in the early part of 1981, but when September arrived, he resumed his work with a vengeance. The volume of violence that Watts displayed in Texas is overwhelming. And I'm going to talk about each case briefly. And listeners, this is just one of the reasons I tend to stay away from serial killers, because each of these women deserves so much more than the sentence or two that they're going to get today. I wish I could tell you everything about them because they deserve that, but we have to work with what is available to us. So we will start on Saturday, September 5th, 1981, when 22-year-old Lillian Tilly drowns in her apartment in Arlington, Texas. Her death is ruled accidental, but Watts will later confess to her murder. A week later, Saturday, September 12, 1981, 
25-year-old Elizabeth Montgomery, yes, like the actress, is attacked while out with her dogs. She will make it back to her home before succumbing to her injuries. The next day, 21-year-old Susan Wolfe arrives at her apartment. As she exits her car, she is knocked to the ground and stabbed five times in the chest. The wounds punctured her heart and lungs. Watts will tell police that he straddled her and stabbed her using an overhand motion. There won't be another murder until the new year, but it's unlikely that Watts was inactive. It's also possible that there were unreported assaults or victims that were not recovered. He may have also traveled home to Michigan during this time, which slowed or hopefully stopped his work. In January of 1982, Julie Sanchez is driving when her car gets a flat tire. She guides the vehicle to the shoulder and sets about getting a spare from the trunk. She is violently attacked by Watts. Her throat is slashed and she is stabbed multiple times. Fortunately, Julie will survive the assault. In a particularly bizarre incident at Rice University in Houston on January 4, 1982, 27-year-old student Phyllis Tam is found hanging from a tree. Like the drowning of Lillian Tilly months earlier, the death is not ruled a homicide until Watts gives his confession. At the time of her death, the medical examiner was not certain if she died because of foul play or a freak accident, but Watts will eventually set the story straight. January of 1982 was a tough time to be a female student at Rice University. On January 17th, not even two weeks after Phyllis Tam was found dead, the remains of 25-year-old Margaret Fossey are found in the trunk of her car, which is parked on campus. Her cause of death is a crushed larynx. January 20th, Patty Johnson, a student from Wisconsin, is attacked, but she survives. When she is presented with a lineup, she picked out 25-year-old Howard Ware Mosley, and he will be sent to prison for the attack. Mosley, his friends and family, they loudly protest his innocence, all the way through his trial, the guilty verdict, and the sentencing. It won't be until Watts is apprehended and confesses that Mosley will be released. The month of February has Watts slowing down a bit. There is only one murder attributed to him, the death of 20-year-old Elena Samander. She was strangled and her body left in a trash bin. What Watts didn't do in February, he more than made up for in March with the murders of 14-year-old Emily Lacroix and 34-year-old Edith Ledet. Ledet was murdered in the early morning hours on the day of her college graduation. She'd studied accounting and looked forward to a bright future. In a bizarre and distressing occurrence, the murder of Lede may have saved the life of Watts' next victim, because less than an hour after he murdered Lede, Watts attacked Glenda Kirby. His hands were still bloody from the assault on Lede, and Kirby managed to get away from him. She was shaken and covered in someone else's blood, but she was still alive. Watts ended the month of March by strangling 20-year-old Mary Castillo and leaving her body in a ditch. Listeners, Watts is escalating. The work that he did in Texas is far worse and far more prolific than the work he did in Michigan. And we have nine more victims to get through. If you're looking for a podcast to add to your playlist, please check out my friend Cambo at True Crime Island. Cambo is passionate and funny. He says all the things I'm thinking about a case. 
and True Crime Island covers a variety of stories, from the well-known, like the Greyhound bus murder in Canada, to cases from Australia and Asia that are totally new to me but fascinating. Listening to True Crime Island is like chilling with a friend who talks true crime. Plus, I love his accent. You can find True Crime Island on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential, and it is so convenient. Get help at your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. My BetterHelp therapist was extremely helpful as I navigated the illness and death of my father earlier this year. And if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. No additional charge. Best of all, it is a truly affordable option. And for Already Gone listeners, you get 10% off your first month with discount code GONE. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com GONE. That's BetterHelp.com GONE. Getting back to Watts' activities in Texas, there is the April 2nd, 1982 disappearance of 19-year-old Christine McDonald from the Rice College campus, the April 5th disappearance of 25-year-old Suzanne Cyrils, and while she was missing, they searched her car and found her shoes and eyeglasses, which were broken. April 15th, tax day, 32-year-old Carrie Mae Jefferson disappears on her way home from her job at the post office. Watts would bury her body near the White Oak Bayou. It's interesting to me that he's suddenly concealing remains. But going back to Nadine O'Dell and Lily Marlene Dunn, there is a possibility he started hiding his work years earlier. April 16, 1982. 22-year-old Yolanda Garcia is stabbed to death in her home. Watts grabbed Garcia from behind, turned her around, stabbed her twice in the heart, and then ran off. He later told police in his confession that he killed Garcia because she, quote, had evil in her eyes. He said that he, quote, was compelled to attack women because they had evil eyes and he needed to rid them of the evil spirit. If you remember his time at the Lafayette Clinic, this is the same thing he told the doctor while he was treated there a decade earlier. Watts would murder three more women before his capture. Sherry Strait, a high school student, she'd been missing for three days when her body was recovered. On May 18th, the body of 32-year-old Gloria Cavallis is found inside of a dumpster. On May 23rd, Watts strangled 20-year-old Michelle Madej when she stepped out of her apartment. He took her body back into her apartment and put her in the bathtub. May 23rd, 1982. Watts kidnaps Lori Lister from the parking lot of her apartment complex. He forces her back into her apartment where he restrains both Lister and her roommate, Melinda Aguilar. Once the women are restrained, Watts drags Lister to the bathroom where he tries to drown her. 
While Watts is engaged with Lister, Aguilar leapt from a second-story window to get help. Police arrive and arrest Watts as he is fleeing the apartment. He will be charged with breaking and entering with intent to commit murder. Let's take a moment here to reflect on the courage of Melinda Aguilar. She jumped from a second-story window to get help. And let's think about how relieved the community must have been that Coral Watts is finally in police custody. And with him being in custody, the prosecutor has to do their job. They have to make a case against him. And looking back at Watts' method of attacking and abducting women, he's known to do a blitz attack, approaching them from behind, likely with his left arm around their waist so he can pin them down, then using a weapon in his right hand for the attack. Then he just drops the body and walks away like nothing happened. Watts was never interested in sexual assault of women, so he didn't leave behind saliva or semen. And the weapons that he used during the attack were not knives, so the likelihood of him being injured and leaving his blood behind was very small. We're also looking at cases from the 70s and 1980s. DNA is not being used to address criminal activity. We are at least a decade away from DNA being commonly used by law enforcement. Coral Watts was a machine. He functioned to murder women, and he enjoyed stalking and killing them, and he was good at it. He killed while leaving behind very little evidence. Police in Texas, they are sure that Watts is the man behind the horrific string of homicides over the last several months, but there is almost no evidence. This puts them in a frustrating situation. They know he's the guy. He knows they know he's the guy, but they can't prove it. The good news is they have an ironclad case against him for the Lister-Aguilar attack. So on August 9th, 1982, they offer Watts a plea deal. He pleads guilty to breaking and entering with intent to murder, and he confesses to the 10 murders they believe he committed. Watts agrees, and he gives his confession, adding two crimes to the list, the drowning of Lillian Tilly and the hanging of Rice University student Phyllis Tam. While Watts is in custody in Texas, law enforcement from Washtenaw County, which is Ann Arbor, including prosecutor William Delhay, travel to Texas. They want to interview Watts and see if they can get information from him on the three Ann Arbor murders. But Washtenaw County tells Texas, look, you guys gave him immunity. We're not doing that. So the prosecutors in Texas say, well, then you can't talk to him. We're not going to let you blow up our case. Either offer him immunity or you're not talking to him. As he heads back to Michigan, Delhay is quoted in the Battle Creek Inquirer in November of 1982, saying it would serve no purpose to give Watts immunity for killing three people. And don't forget, in Kalamazoo, the Western Michigan University police, they still have the case against Watts for Gloria Steele's murder. And they tell the press that, look, we're not making any decisions about the Steele case until we consult with her family. Back to Texas. When all is said and done, Watts receives a 60-year sentence. But he's not charged with murder, just breaking and entering with intent to murder. Watts agrees to the deal, and on September 3, 1982, he gets the 60-year sentence. Watts is 29 years old. 
So it's assumed he's going to die in prison because he wouldn't be released before his 89th birthday, right? Well, not so fast, because Coral Eugene Watts is not going down without a fight. With the help of an attorney, Watts challenges his sentence, and the argument he uses is that bathwater is not a deadly weapon. Watts says he didn't know the prosecutors labeled the bathwater he tried to drown Lister in as a deadly weapon. The Texas Court of Appeals, they agree with Watts, and now suddenly he's eligible for parole. A known serial killer, he is eligible for parole. And he's not eligible for parole in five years or in 10 years. He is immediately eligible for parole. The Court of Appeals stated that Watts can be considered for what they call normal parole. And Watts comes up for parole six times between 1990 and 2004, and he is denied every single time. Listeners, you should know that Watts was a model prisoner. He did his work. He didn't get in fights. He was agreeable. Prison was a comfortable space for him. There were no women around with their evil influence to distract him. And because he was such a good prisoner, he earned additional credits. And much to the outrage of anyone familiar with his case, it is announced that on May 9th, 2006, Watts will be released from prison. Remember, he'd been sentenced to 60 years, but he hadn't served even 25 years. The wheels of justice were moving again, and Watts was scheduled for release. Thankfully, Texas realizes they cannot just release this guy. So they call the state of Michigan and say, we're in a bit of a pickle. When Michigan learns that Watts is going to be released, they start scrambling to put a case together against him. Any crimes he committed in Texas are off the table because of the plea deal he took in 82. It is up to law enforcement in Michigan to keep him behind bars. Well, I wish I could tell you that Michigan again being involved in Watt's case would mean resolution for some of our missing people, particularly 16-year-old Nadine O'Dell or Lily Marlene Dunn. They have to work with what they have. And the way that Watts attacked his victims, there isn't much left behind in the way of evidence. Michigan Attorney General Mike Cox, and yes, that's his name. I know, let's not go there. Cox holds a press conference in 2004 saying that he's looking for people who knew Watts. That Watts is serving a sentence in Texas, but he's suspected of murder in Michigan, and the Attorney General needs the public's help. Listeners, someone does step forward to help. A man we talked about previously, Joseph Foy. Foy, who now lives in Westland, he was in Ferndale on the night that Helen Dutcher was murdered near the Ferndale dry cleaners. Foy sees and recognizes the image of Watts, and he says, that's the man I saw dragging Dutcher behind a dumpster back in 1979. When Dutcher's body was found, it was Foy who called the police and gave a statement. He also worked with police that night to create a sketch of the suspect. In April of 2004, Coral Eugene Watts is extradited from Texas to Michigan to be tried for the murder of Helen Dutcher. While Watts had immunity for murder in Texas, his confession to multiple killings in the Lone Star State will be allowed in as evidence in his Michigan trial. In addition to his confession, which, let's face it, it's damning, Three of Watts' surviving victims appear in court to testify against him. Julie Sanchez, 
the young woman who was attacked while changing a flat tire, also Melinda Aguilar and Lori Lister, the women that he was attacking when he was captured in 1982, they all show up and testify against him. On November 17, 2004, Watts is found guilty of the murder of Helen Dutcher some 25 years earlier. Now, Michigan is not a death penalty state. We really never have been. So Watts is given a life sentence. They could have left it there. Watts is in prison. He can't hurt anybody else. But they're not done with him yet. On December 9, 2004, Watts is charged in the 1974 murder of 19-year-old Gloria Steele. Watts was always the main and only suspect in her murder. So Michigan authorities begin the process of charging Watts with Steele's murder. He will go on trial for her murder in July of 2007. Watts is found guilty and sentenced to life without parole again on September 13, 2007. But at the time of the trial for Steele's murder, Watts was gravely ill. On August 28, 2007, he was transferred to a secure setting inside of Foot Hospital in Jackson. As Foot Hospital regularly provided medical care to inmates from the nearby prison, they are well equipped to hold a prisoner securely. On September 21, 2007, Coral Eugene Watts died from prostate cancer. His death was not considered suspicious, and no autopsy is performed. Mayola Steele, the mother of Gloria Steele, the first confirmed victim of Coral Watts, was notified of his death just days after he was sentenced for the murder of her child. Mrs. Steele told the press, quote, I'm very sorry. I just hope he made peace with the Lord. Already Gone is a true crime podcast focused on Michigan and the Great Lakes region. We will return on Wednesday, January 15th to talk about an often requested topic, the murder of Gross Point resident Jane Bashara in 2012. You can support Already Gone by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. For early and ad-free access to episodes, as well as bonus content, you can find Already Gone on Patreon. Please check out our sponsor, BetterHelp. Use code GONE for a discount on your first month with BetterHelp. Research for this episode was provided by Haley Gray. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Thank you.